0: chapter 7 of an inquiry into the human mind on the principles of common sense this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by k hand an inquiry into the human mind on the principles of common sense by thomas reed chapter 7 conclusion containing reflections upon the opinions of philosophers on this subject There are two ways in which men may form their notions and opinions concerning the mind and concerning its powers and operations. The first is the only way that leads to truth, but it is narrow and rugged and few have entered upon it. The second is broad and smooth and hath been much beaten, not only by the vulgar, but even by philosophers. It is sufficient for common life and is well adapted to the purposes of the poet and orator, but in philosophical disquisitions concerning the mind it leads to error and delusion. We may call the first of these ways the way of reflection when the operations of the mind are exerted we are conscious of them and it is in our power to attend to them and to reflect upon them until they become familiar objects of thought this is the only way in which we can form just and accurate notions of those operations but this attention and reflection is so difficult to man surrounded on all hands by external objects which constantly solicit his attention that it has been very little practised even by philosophers in the course of this inquiry we have had many occasions to show how little attention hath been given to the most familiar operations of the senses the second and most common way in which men form their opinions concerning the mind and its operations we may call the way of analogy there is nothing in the course of nature so singular but we can find some resemblance or at least some analogy between it and other things with which we are acquainted the mind naturally delights in hunting after such analogies and attends to them with pleasure from them poetry and wit derive a greater part of their charms and eloquence not a little of its persuasive force besides the pleasure we receive from analogies they are of very considerable use both to facilitate the conception of things when they are not easily apprehended without such a handle and to lead us to probable conjectures about their nature and qualities when we want the means of more direct and immediate knowledge when i consider that the planet jupiter in like manner as the earth rolls around its own axis and revolves around the sun and that he is enlightened by several secondary planets as the earth is enlightened by the moon i am apt to conjecture from analogy that as the earth by these means is fitted to be the habitation of various orders of animals so the planet jupiter is by the like means fitted for the same purpose and have no argument more direct and conclusive to determine me in this point i yield to this analogical reasoning a degree of ascent proportioned to its strength when i observe that the potato plant very much resembles the solanum in its flower and fructification, and am informed that the last is poisonous i am apt from analogy to have some suspicion of the former but in this case i have access to more direct and certain evidences and therefore ought not to trust analogy which would lead me in error arguments from analogy are always at hand and grow up spontaneously in a fruitful imagination while arguments that are more direct and more conclusive often require painful attention and application, and therefore mankind in general have been very much disposed to trust the former. If one attentively examines the systems of the ancient philosophers, either concerning the material world or concerning the mind, he will find them to be built solely upon the foundation of analogy. Lord Bacon first delineated the strict and severe method of induction, since his time it has been applied with very happy success in some parts of natural philosophy, and hardly in anything else but there is no subject in which mankind are so much disposed to trust to the analogical way of thinking and reasoning as in what concerns the mind and its operations because to form clear and distinct notions of those operations in the direct and proper way and to reason about them requires a habit of attentive reflection of which few are capable and which even by these few cannot be attained without much pains and labor every man is apt to form his notions of things difficult to be apprehended or less familiar from their analogy to things which are more familiar thus if a man bred to the seafaring life and accustomed to think and talk only of matters relating to navigation enters into discourse upon any other subject it is well known that the language and notions proper to his own profession are infused into every subject and all things are measured by the rules of navigation and if he should take it into his head to philosophize concerning the faculties of the mind it cannot be doubted but he would draw his notions from the fabric of his ship and would find in the mind sails masts rudder and compass sensible objects of one kind or another do no less occupy and engross the rest of mankind than things relating to navigation the seafaring man for a considerable part of life we can think of nothing but the objects of sense and to attend to objects of another nature so as to form clear and distinct notions of them is no easy matter even after we come to years of reflection the condition of mankind therefore affords good reason to apprehend that their language and their common notions concerning the mind and its operations will be analogical and derived from the objects of sense and that these analogies will be apt to impose upon philosophers as well upon the vulgar and to lead them to materialize the mind and its faculties and experience abundantly confirms the truth of this how generally men of all nations and in all ages of the world have conceived the soul or thinking principle in man to be some subtle matter like breath or wind the names given to it in almost all languages sufficiently testify we have words which are proper and not analogical to express the various ways in which we perceive external objects by the senses such as feeling sight taste but we are often obliged to use these words analogically to express either powers of the mind which are of a very different nature and the powers which imply some degree of reflection have generally no names but such as are analogical the objects of thought are said to be in the mind to be apprehended comprehended conceived imagined retained weighed ruminated it does not appear that the notions of the ancient philosophers with regard to the nature of the soul were much more refined than those of the vulgar or that they were formed in any other way we shall distinguish the philosophy that regards our subject into the old and the new the old reached down to descartes who gave it a fatal blow of which it has been gradually expiring ever since and is now almost extinct descartes is the father of the new philosophy that relates to this subject but it hath been gradually improving since his time upon the principles laid down by him the old philosophy seems to have been purely analogical the new is more derived from reflection but still with a very considerable mixture of the old analogical notions because the objects of sense consist of matter and form the ancient philosophers conceived every thing to belong to one of these or to be made up of both some therefore thought that the soul is a particular kind of subtle matter separable from our gross bodies others thought that it is only a particular form of the body and inseparable from it for there seem to have been some among the ancients as well as some among the moderns Who conceived that a certain structure or organization of the body is all that is necessary to render it sensible and intelligent the different powers of the mind were accordingly by the last sect of philosophers conceived to belong to different parts of the body as the heart the brain the liver the stomach the blood they who thought that the soul is a subtle matter separable from the body disputed to which of the four elements it belongs whether to earth water air or fire of the three last each had its particular advocates but some were of the opinion that it partakes of all the elements that it must have something in its composition similar to everything we perceive and that we perceive earth by the earthly part water by the watery part and fire by the fiery part of the soul some philosophers not satisfied with the determining of what kind of matter the soul is made inquired likewise into its figure which they determined to be spherical that it might be the more fit for motion the most spiritual and sublime notion concerning the nature of the soul to be met with among the ancient philosophers i conceive to be that of the platonists who held that it is made of that celestial and incorruptible matter of which the fixed stars were made and therefore has a natural tendency to rejoin its proper element i am at a loss to say in which of these classes of philosophers aristotle ought to be placed he defines the soul to be the first entelegia of a natural body which has potential life I beg to be excused from translating the Greek word, because I know not the meaning of it. The notions of the ancient philosophers with regard to the operations of the mind, particularly with regard to perceptions and ideas, seem likewise to have been formed by the same kind of analogy. Plato, of the writers that are extant, first introduced the word idea into philosophy, but his doctrine upon this subject had somewhat peculiar he agreed with the rest of the ancient philosophers in this that all things consist of matter and form and that the matter of which all things were made existed from eternity without form but he likewise believed that there are eternal forms of all possible things which exist without matter and to these eternal and immaterial forms he gave the name of ideas maintaining that they are the only object of true knowledge it is of no great moment to us whether he borrowed these notions from parmenides or whether they were the issue of his own creative imagination the latter platonists seem to have improved upon them in conceiving those ideas or external forms of things to exist not of themselves but in the divine mind and to be the models and patterns according to which all things were made then lived the eternal one then deep retired in his unfathomed essence viewed at large the uncreated images of things to these platonic notions that of Malebranche is very nearly allied this author seems more than any other to have been aware of the difficulties attending to the common hypothesis concerning ideas to wit that ideas of all objects of thought are in the human mind and therefore in order to avoid those difficulties makes the ideas which are the immediate objects of human thought to be the ideas of things in the divine mind who being intimately present to every human mind may discover his ideas to it as far as pleaseth him the platonist and the Malebranche accepted All other philosophers, as far as I know, have conceived that there are ideas or images of every object of thought in the human mind, or at least in some part of the brain, where the mind is supposed to have its residence. Aristotle had no good affection to the word idea, and seldom or never uses it but in refuting Plato's notions about ideas. He thought that matter may exist without form, but that form cannot exist without matter. But at the same time he taught that there can be no sensation, no imagination, nor intellection without forms— phantasms or species in the mind and that things sensible are perceived by sensible species and things intelligible by intelligible species his followers taught more explicitly that those sensible and intelligible species are set forth by the objects and make their impressions upon the passive intellect and that the active intellect perceives them in the passive intellect and this seems to have been the common opinion while the peripatetic philosophy retained its authority the epicurean doctrine as explained by lucretius though widely different from the peripatetic in many things is almost the same in this he reaffirms that slender films or ghosts tenua rerum simulacra are still going off from all things and flying about and that these being extremely subtle easily penetrate our gross bodies and striking upon the mind cause thought and imagination after the peripatetic system had reigned above a thousand years in the schools of europe almost without a rival it sunk before that of descartes the perspicuity of hugh's writings and notions contrasted with the obscurity of aristotle and his commentators created a strong prejudice in favor of this new philosophy the characteristic of plato's genius was sublimity that of aristotle's subtlety but descartes far excelled in both perspicuity and bequeathed this spirit to his successors the system which is now generally received with regard to the mind and its operations derives not only its spirit from descartes but its fundamental principles and after all the improvements made by Malebranche, locke berkeley and hume may still be called the cartesian system we shall therefore make some remarks upon its spirit and tendency in general and upon its doctrine concerning ideas in particular it may be observed that the method which descartes pursued naturally led him to attend more to the operations of the mind by accurate reflection and to trust less to analogical reasoning upon this subject than any philosopher had done before him intending to build a system upon a new foundation he began with a resolution to admit nothing but what was absolutely certain and evident he supposed that his senses his memory his reason and every other faculty to which we trust in common life might be fallacious and resolved to disbelieve everything until he was compelled by irresistible evidence to yield assent in this method of proceeding what appeared to him first of all certain and evident was that he thought that he doubted that he deliberated in a word the operations of his own mind of which he was conscious must be real and no delusion and though all his other faculties should deceive him his consciousness could not this therefore he looked upon as the first of all truths this was the first firm ground upon which he set his foot after being tossed in the ocean of scepticism and he resolved to build all knowledge upon it without seeking after any more first principles as every other truth therefore and particularly the existence of the objects of sense was to be deduced by a train of strict argumentation from what he knew by consciousness he was naturally led to give attention to the operations of which he was conscious without borrowing his notions of them from external things it was not in the way of analogy but attentive reflection that he was led to observe that thought volition remembrance and the other attributes of the mind are altogether unlike to extension to figure and to all other attributes of the body and that we have no reason therefore to conceive thinking substances to have any resemblance to extend substances and that as the attributes of thinking substance are things of which we are conscious we may have a more certain and immediate knowledge of them by reflection than we can have of external objects by our senses these observations as far as i know were first made by descartes and they are of more importance and throw more light upon the subject than all that had been said upon it before they ought to make us diffident and jealous of every notion concerning the mind and its operations which is drawn from sensible objects in the way of analogy and to make us rely only upon accurate reflection as the source of all real knowledge upon this subject I observed that as the peripatetic system has a tendency to materialize in the mind and its operations so the cartesian has a tendency to spiritualize body and its qualities one error common to both systems leads to the first of these extremes in the way of analogy and to the last in the way of reflection the error i mean is that we can know nothing about body or its qualities but as far as we have sensations which resemble those qualities both systems agreed in this but according to their different methods of reasoning they drew very different conclusions from it the peripatetic drawing his notions of sensation from the qualities of body the cartesian on the contrary drawing his notions of the qualities of body from his sensations the peripatetic taking it for granted that bodies and their qualities do really exist and are such as we commonly take them to be inferred from them the nature of his sensations and reasoned in this manner our sensations are the impressions which sensible objects make upon the mind and may be compared to the impression of a seal upon wax the impression is the image or form of the seal without the matter of it in like manner every sensation is the image or form of some sensible quality of the object this is the reasoning of aristotle and it has an evident tendency to materialize the mind and its sensations the cartesian on the contrary thinks that the existence of body or of any of its qualities is not to be taken as a first principle and that we ought to admit nothing concerning it but what by just reasoning can be deduced from our sensations and he knows that by reflection we can form clear and distinct notions of our sensations without borrowing our notions of them by analogy from the objects of sense the cartesians therefore beginning to give attention to their sensations first discovered that the sensations corresponding to secondary qualities cannot resemble any quality of the body Hence Descartes and Locke inferred that sound, taste, smell, color, heat, and cold, which the vulgar took to be qualities of the body, were not qualities of body, but of mere sensations of the mind. Afterward, the ingenious Berkeley, considering more attentively the nature of sensation in general, discovered and demonstrated that no sensation whatever could possibly resemble any quality of an insentient being, such as a body is supposed to be and hence he inferred very justly that there is the same reason to hold extension figure and all the primary qualities to be mere sensations as there is to hold the secondary qualities to be mere sensations thus by just reasoning upon the cartesian principles matter was stripped of all its qualities the new system by a kind of metaphysical sublimation converted all the qualities of matter into sensations and spiritualized body as the old had materialized spirit the way to avoid both these extremes is to admit the existence of what we see and feel as a first principle as well as the existence of things whereof we are conscious and to take our notions of the qualities of body from the testimony of our senses with the peripatetics and our notions of our sensations from the testimony of consciousness with the cartesians Three. I observed that the modern skepticism is the natural issue of the new system and that although it did not bring forth this monster into the year 1739 it may be said to have carried it in its womb from the beginning the old system admitted all the principles of common sense as first principles without requiring any proof of them and therefore though its reasoning was commonly vague analogical and dark yet it was built upon a broad foundation and had no tendency to skepticism we do not find that any peripatetic thought it incumbent upon him to prove the existence of a material world but every writer upon the cartesian system attempted this until berkeley clearly demonstrated the futility of their arguments and thence concluded that there was no such thing as a material world and that the belief of it ought to be rejected as a vulgar error the new system admits only of the principles of common sense as the first principle and pretends by strict augmentation to deduce all the rest from it that our thoughts our sensations and everything of which we are conscious hath a real existence is admitted in this system as a first principle but everything else must be made evident by the light of reason reason must rear the whole fabric of knowledge upon this single principle of consciousness there is a disposition in human nature to reduce things to as few principles as possible and this without doubt adds to the beauty of a system if the principles are able to support what rests upon them the mathematician's glory very justly in having raised so noble and magnificent a system of science upon the foundation of a few axioms and definitions this love of simplicity of reducing things to few principles hath produced many a false system but there never was any system in which it appears so remarkably as that of descartes his whole system concerning matter and spirit is built upon one axiom expressed in one word upon the foundation of conscious thought with ideas for his materials he builds his system of human understanding and attempts to account for all its phenomena and having as he imagined from his consciousness proved the existence of matter and of a certain quantity of motion originally impressed upon it he builds his system of the material world and attempts to account for all its phenomena these principles with regard to the material system have been found insufficient and it has been made evident that besides matter and motion we must admit gravitation cohesion corpuscular attraction magnetism and other centripetal and centrifugal forces by which the particles of matter attract and repel each other Newton, having discovered this and demonstrated that these principles cannot be resolved into matter and motion, was led by analogy and the love of simplicity to conjecture, but with a modesty and caution peculiar to him, that all the phenomena of the material world depended upon attracting and repelling forces in the particles of matter but we may now venture to say that this conjecture fell short of the mark for even in the unorganized kingdom the powers by which salts crystals spars and many other bodies concrete into regular forms can never be accounted for by attracting and repelling forces in the particles of matter and in the vegetable and animal kingdoms there are strong indications of powers of a different nature from all the powers of unorganized bodies we see then that although in the structure of the material world there is without a doubt all the beautiful simplicity consistent with the purposes for which it was made it is not so simple as the great descartes determined it to be nay it is not so simple as the greater newton modestly conjectured it to be both were misled by analogy and the love of simplicity one had been much conversant about the extension figure and motion the other had enlarged his views to attracting and repelling forces and both formed their notions of unknown parts of nature from those with which they were acquainted as the shepherd Titius formed his notion of the city of rome from his country village urbem quam dicunt romam melebae putabi stultos ego huic nostre similem quo solemus pastores oveum teneros depellere fatus sic canibus catullos similes sic matribus haidos noram sic parvis companere magna solebom this is just a picture of the analogical way of thinking but to come to the system of descartes concerning the human understanding it was built as we have observed upon consciousness as its sole foundation and with ideas as its materials and all his followers have built upon the same foundation and with the same materials they acknowledge that nature hath given us various simple ideas these are analogous to the matter of descartes physical system they acknowledge likewise a natural power by which ideas are compounded disjoined associated compared this is analogous to the original quantity of motion in descartes physical system from these principles they attempt to explain the phenomena of the human understanding just as in the physical system the phenomena of nature were to be explained by matter and motion it must indeed be acknowledged that there is great simplicity in this system as well as in the other there is such a similitude between the two as may be expected between children of the same father but as the one has been found to be the child of descartes and not of nature there is ground to think that the other is so likewise That the natural issue of this system is skepticism with regard to everything except the existence of our ideas and of their necessary relations Which appear upon comparing them is evident for ideas being the only objects of thought and having no existence But when we are conscious of them it necessarily follows that there is no object of our thought which can have a continued and permanent existence body and spirit cause and effect time and space, to which we were wont to ascribe an existence independent of our thought, are all turned out of existence by this short dilemma. Either these things are ideas of sensation or reflection, or they are not. If they are ideas of sensation or reflection, they can have no existence but when we are conscious of them. If they are not ideas of sensation or reflection, they are words without any meaning. Neither Descartes nor Locke perceived this consequence of their system concerning ideas. Bishop Berkeley was the first who discovered it. And what followed upon this discovery why with regard to the material world and with regard to space and time he admits the consequence that these things are mere ideas and have no existence but in our minds but with regard to the existence of spirits or minds he does not admit the consequence and if he had admitted it he must have been an absolute skeptic but how does he evade this consequence with regard to the existence of spirits the expedient which the good bishop uses on this occasion is very remarkable and shows his great aversion to skepticism he maintains that we have no ideas of spirits and that we can think and speak and reason about them and about their attributes without having any ideas of them if this is so my lord what should hinder us from thinking and reasoning about bodies and their qualities without having ideas of them the bishop either did not think of this question nor did think fit to give any answer to it however we may observe that in order to avoid scepticism he fairly starts out of the cartesian system without giving any reason why he did so in this instance and in no other this indeed is the only instance of a deviation from cartesian principles which i have met with in the successors of descartes and it seems to have been only a sudden start occasioned by the terror of skepticism for in all other things berkeley's system is founded upon cartesian principles thus we see that descartes and locke take the road that leads to skepticism without knowing the end of it but they stop short for want of light to carry them farther berkeley frightened at the appearance of the dreadful abyss starts aside and avoids it but the author of the treatise of human nature more daring and intrepid without turning aside to the right hand or to the left like virgil's alecto shoots directly into the gulf hic specis horrendum et saivi spiracula ditis monstrantur ruptoque in ercerante vorago pestiferas apert Four. We may observe that the account given by the new system of that furniture of the human understanding which is the gift of nature, and not the acquisition of our own reasoning faculty, is extremely lame and imperfect. The natural furniture of the human understanding is of two kinds—first, the notions or simple apprehensions which we have of things, and secondly, the judgments or the belief which we have concerning them. As to our notions, the new system reduces them to two classes—ideas of sensation and ideas of reflection the first are conceived to be copies of our sensations retained in the memory or imagination the second to be copies of the operations of our minds whereof we are conscious in like manner retained in the memory or imagination and we are taught that these two comprehend all the materials about which the human understanding is or can be employed as to our judgment of things or the belief which we have concerning them the new system allows no part of it to be the gift of nature but holds it to be the acquisition of reason and to be got by comparing our ideas and perceiving their agreements or disagreements now I take this account both of our notions and of our judgments or belief to be extremely imperfect and I shall briefly point out some of its capital defects the division of our notions into ideas of sensation and ideas of reflection is contrary to all rules of logic because the second member of the division includes the first for can we form clear and just notions of our sensations any other way than by reflection surely we cannot sensation is an operation of the mind of which we are conscious and we get the notion of sensation by reflecting upon that which we are conscious of in like manner doubting and believing are operations of the mind whereof we are conscious we get the notion of them by reflecting upon what we are conscious of the ideas of sensation therefore are ideas of reflection as much as the ideas of doubt or believing or any other ideas whatsoever but to pass over the inaccuracy of this division it is extremely incomplete for since sensation is an operation of the mind as well as all the other things of which we form our notions by reflection when it is asserted that all our notions are either ideas of sensation or ideas of reflection the plain english of this is that mankind neither do nor can think of anything but of the operations of their own mind Nothing can be more contrary to truth, or more contrary to the experience of mankind. I know that Locke, while he maintained this doctrine, believed the notions which we have of body and of its qualities and the notions which we have of motion and of space to be the ideas of sensation. But why did he believe this? Because he believed those notions to be nothing else but images of our sensations. If, therefore, the notions of body and its qualities, of motion and space, be not images of our sensations, will it not follow that those notions are not ideas of sensation? most certainly there is no doctrine in the new system which more directly leads to skepticism than this and the author of the treatise of human nature knew very well how to use it for that purpose for if you maintain that there is any such existence as body or spirit time or place cause or effect he immediately catches you between the horns of this dilemma your notions of these existences are either ideas of sensation or ideas of reflection if of sensation from what sensation are they copied if of reflection from what operations of the mind are they copied it is indeed to be wished that those who have written much about sensation and about the other operations of the mind had likewise thought and reflected much and with great care upon those operations but is it not very strange that they will not allow it to be possible for mankind to think of anything else the account which this system gives of our judgment and belief concerning things is as far from the truth as the account it gives of our notions or simple apprehensions it represents our senses as having no other office but that of furnishing the mind with notions or simple apprehensions of things and makes our judgment and belief concerning those things to be acquired by comparing our notions together and perceiving their agreements or disagreements we have shown on the contrary that every operation of the senses in its very nature implies judgment or belief as well as simple apprehension thus when i feel the pain of the gout in my toe i have not only a notion of pain but a belief of its existence and a belief of some disorder in my toe which occasions it and this belief is not produced by comparing ideas and perceiving their agreements and disagreements it is included in the very nature of the sensation When I perceive a tree before me, my faculty of seeing gives me not only a notion or simple apprehension of the tree, but a belief of its existence, and of its figure, distance, and magnitude, and this judgment or belief is not got by comparing ideas, it is included in the very nature of the perception. We have taken notice of several original principles of belief in the course of this inquiry, and when other faculties of the mind are examined, we shall find more which have not occurred in the examination of the five senses such original and natural judgments are therefore a part of that furniture which nature hath given to the human understanding they are the inspiration of the almighty no less than our notions or simple apprehensions they serve to direct us in the common affairs of life where our reasoning faculty would leave us in the dark they are a part of our constitution and all the discoveries of our reason are grounded upon them they make up what is called the common sense of mankind and what is manifestly contrary to any of those first principles is what we call absurd the strength of them is good sense which is often found in those who are not acute in reasoning a remarkable deviation from them arising from a disorder in the constitution is what we call lunacy as when a man believes that he is made of glass when a man suffers himself to be reasoned out of the principles of common sense by metaphysical arguments we may call this metaphysical lunacy which differs from the other species of the distemper in this that it is not continued but intermittent it is apt to seize the patient in solitary and speculative moments but when he enters into society common sense recovers her authority a clear explication and enumeration of the principles of common sense is one of the chief desiderata in logic we have only considered such of them as occurred in the examination of the five senses five the last observation that i shall make upon the new system is that although it professes to set out in the way of reflection and not of analogy it hath retained some of the old analogical notions concerning the operations of the mind particularly that things which do not exist in the mind itself can only be perceived remembered or imagined by means of ideas or images of them in the mind which are the immediate objects of perception remembrance and imagination this doctrine appears evidently to be borrowed from the old system which taught that external things make impressions upon the mind like the impressions of a seal upon wax that it is by means of those impressions that we perceive remember or imagine them and that those impressions must resemble the things from which they are taken when we form our notions of the operations of the mind by analogy this way of conceiving them seems to be very natural and offers itself to our thoughts for as everything which is felt must make some impression upon the body we are apt to think that everything which is understood must make some impression upon the mind from such analogical reasoning this opinion of the existence of ideas or images of things in the mind seems to have taken its rise and to have been so universally received among philosophers it was observed already that berkeley in one instance apostatizes from this principle of the new system by affirming that we have no ideas of spirits and that we can think of them immediately without ideas but i know not whether in this he has had any followers there is some difference likewise among modern philosophers with regard to the ideas or images by which we perceive remember or imagine sensible things for though all agree in the existence of such images they differ about their place some placing them in a particular part of the brain where the soul is thought to have her residence and others placing them in the mind itself descartes held the first of these opinions to which newton seems likewise to have inclined for he proposes this query in his optics anon sensorium animalum est locus cui substantia sentiens adest en en quim sensibilis rerum species per nervos et cerebrum desferuntur ut ibi presentes a presente sentire possint but locke seems to place the ideas of sensible things in the mind and that berkeley and the author of the treatise of human nature were of the same opinion is evident the last makes a very curious application of this doctrine by endeavoring to prove from it that the mind either is no substance or that it is an extended and divisible substance because the ideas of extension cannot be in a subject which is indivisible and unextended i confess i think his reasoning in this as in most cases is clear and strong for whether the idea of extension be only another name for extension itself as berkeley and his author assert or whether the idea of extension be an image and resemblance of extension as locke conceived i appeal to any man of common sense whether extension or any image of extension can be in an unextended and indivisible object but while i agree with him in his reasoning i would make a different application of it he takes it for granted that there are ideas of extension in the mind and thence infers that if it is at all a substance it must be an extended indivisible substance on the contrary i take it for granted upon the testimony of common sense that my mind is a substance that is a permanent subject of thought and my reason convinces me that it is an unextended and indivisible substance and hence i infer that there cannot be in it anything that resembles extension if this reasoning had occurred to berkeley it would probably have led him to acknowledge that we may think and reason concerning bodies without having ideas of them in the mind as well as concerning spirits I intended to have examined more particularly and fully this doctrine of the existence of ideas or images of things in the mind, and likewise another doctrine which is founded upon it, to wit, that judgment or belief is nothing but a perception of the agreement or disagreement of our ideas, but having already shewn, through the course of this inquiry, that the operations of the mind which we have examined give no countenance to either of these doctrines, and in many things contradict them, I have thought it proper to drop this part of my design it may be educated with more advantage if it is at all necessary after inquiring into some other powers of the human understanding although we have examined only the five senses and the principles of the human mind which are employed about them or such as have fallen in our way in the course of this examination we shall leave the further prosecution of this inquiry to future deliberation the powers of memory of imagination of taste of reasoning of moral perception the will the passions the affections and all the active powers of the soul present a vast and boundless field of philosophical disquisition which the author of this inquiry is far from thinking himself able to survey with accuracy many authors of ingenuity ancient and modern have made excursions into this vast territory and have communicated useful observations but there is reason to believe that those who have pretended to give us a map of the whole have satisfied themselves with a very inaccurate and incomplete survey if galileo had attempted a complete system of natural philosophy he had probably done little service to mankind but by confining himself to what was within his comprehension he laid the foundation of a system of knowledge which rises by degrees and does honor to the human understanding newton building upon this foundation and in like manner confining his inquiries to the law of gravitation and the properties of light performed wonders if he had attempted a great deal more he had done a great deal less and perhaps nothing at all ambitious of following such great examples with unequal steps alas in unequal force we have attempted an inquiry only into one little corner of the human mind that corner which seems to be most exposed to vulgar observation and to be most easily comprehended and yet if we have delineated it justly it must be acknowledged that the accounts heretofore given of it were very lame and wide of the truth the end end of chapter seven End of an inquiry into the human mind on the principles of common sense by Thomas Reed.